Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. We're so glad that you came with us, got uh, listening to us this morning in Washington, D.C. The sun is up. It's a beautiful day out there today, a little bit chilly, but we're just glad to be up and glad to be able to talk to Mr. Marie Smith this morning on co-ops. Mr. Smith is the chief executive officer of the local government federal credit union in North Carolina. And that's all of the employees, uh, appointed officials, elected office holders, and volunteers of local governments in North Carolina. Good morning, Mr. Smith. Good morning, Vernon. This is such a pleasure to be with you here this morning. It's absolutely my pleasure, sir. You've just also been elected to the chairman of the board of the National Co-op Bank. Is that correct? That is correct. So I so very much appreciate the confidence of my colleagues who directors who are on the board, and to uh, Chuck Snyder, who is the CEO of the bank. So it's uh, it's an honor to uh, serve in this role. Madonna, who is in charge of marketing at um, Cabot Creamery, said that Chuck Snyder and the folks at NCB are angels. They really help people, and that's how I have found Chuck to be. And they have sponsored this program for a little over seven years and been yeah. not only financial support but really cheerleading for us and helping us to figure out People like you, I mean, he recommended that we get you on. He has a lot of respect for you. And listening to your bio, I've got a lot of respect for you, too, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you, sir. This is going to be fun. So I have it that your being the chair is well-deserved. So he grew up on a farm in North Carolina, right? And somehow you got into finance. That is correct. Very much so. So I got this. The title of our our session today is From the Farm to Finance, and we're going to try to explore all of that this day. Okay, very good. So where in North Carolina are you from, sir? Originally from a little seaside town named Southport, St. Brunswick County. So if you're looking at a map of North Carolina, you're on the east coast and you're heading towards South Carolina, and we are pretty close to the South Carolina-North Carolina state line. Okay. So in, in my, re, as I get ready to retire, I've been thinking about North Carolina as a place. I've I've gone down there and looked either North Carolina or South Carolina as possible places. I like a little bit of warm than what we get up here. <laughs> Although this is better than West Virginia where I grew up in terms of, of, of coldness and so forth. Okay. So how did you, how did you choose to go from a farm to finance? What was that about? Vernon, that's a really good question, and it's probably one of my fondest memories of a child growing up. So we, we, I, raised, I was raised on a small vegetable farm. We did some retail and wholesale farming for, for some of the local uh, grocery stores, and I've been in this business for 41 years, the credit union movement, the industry here, 
But my actual career, I feel like, began 10 years prior to that at the age 12. My dad and I were out in a potato field planting potatoes. He stopped in the middle of the field, turned to me, and he asked, Maurice, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Now, I'm, t- I'm 12 years old, Vernon. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how girls work. He said, <laughs> he said, you need to choose your career right now. So I thought about it for a moment, and I did what most 12 years old would do. I shrugged my shoulders, and I said, I don't know. He said, that's not good enough. Choose a career now, or I will choose one for you. Ooh. I asked, could I have 24 hours to think about it? He said, sure. The next day, we were taking some receipts to the uh, local community bank and standing in the lobby waiting for a teller to be freed up so we can conduct our transaction. I turned and there was this gentleman sitting in an office, glass walls. I could see he had important papers on his desk and certificates on the wall. He was wearing a white starch shirt and a necktie. And I asked my dad, who was that man over there? My dad said, that is the bank president. And without thinking any further, I turned to my dad and said, that's what I want to be. I want to be a bank president. Now, Vernon, this is now, was that, was that a, was that a black man? Was that a black man? No, he was a white gentleman. And this is 1969. Our schools had integrated the year before. I had not seen an African-American in a position of that capacity before with my own eyes. They existed, but I hadn't seen it. My dad turned to me and said, you want to be the bank president? I said, yes, sir. I want to be the bank president. The next three sentences out of my dad's mouth would change my life. He said that you need, then you need to go to college. You need to major in business and I will help you. And from that point forward, our conversations on the farm changed. He would drill me about Keynesian economics, about supply and demand, the rule of 72. He would talk to me about compounding interest, how banking works, the disparities in communities based on economic empowerment and access to resources. On our rise to the farmer's market, those will be lessons about economics and money and commerce and how the world works and how, what it takes to build a successful career in business. My oh, well, I'm sorry. Can I stop you? I'm not, can I stop you a minute, Maurice? I'm sorry. Yes. I, I'm, I'm sorry to stop you, but you went from trying to figure out how girls work to figuring out how the economy works. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in, in 24 hours. <laughs> uh, and I had more success with the latter. <laughs> I, I did indeed. That's how my career began, and it sort of set sail on this journey that I have been on for the last five decades. I have so much respect for your dad because I don't think my father could have had those conversations with me. My father, uh, my grandfather worked in the mines in West Virginia, the coal mines. So they went underground and did coal. And my father worked on the railroad. And uh, it was stuff like how unions work. Uh, we get into that in labor, labor against management, but nowhere about Keynesian's uh, economics or mm. supply and demand or rule of seven. No, no, no. I, I don't think my father did it. Now, he, he was also intently interested in world events because he and my mother met in World War II. And... Uh-huh. Um, and and they had you know traveled the world. My my grandfather was in World War One, and he had gotten injured in World War One. So the not a, a focus on the world and how the world works and what's going on politically 
very much into that. But business, no. So, and if your father pushing you at age 12 to decide. I like what he said. You'll decide or I'll decide for you. You got to do this in 24 hours. Okay. So you were saying on those rides to the market, he was teaching you all of these things. Any, anything else he was teaching you about economics and farming and money, money? You know, Vernon, my dad explained that it wasn't of highest concern what my career or my life ambitions would be in term, professionally. He said, it's okay if I make a choice today and I choose to change my mind later. He said, but you substitute one goal with another goal, that I did not have the luxury of going through life without an aim or an objective always in front of me. He said, son, you need to choose something that's going to be honorable. You'll be able to take care of a family, take care of yourself. Those are his main concerns. But he said, you have to... You have to live with intention and not just always look to the future and just hope something good is going to happen or not have some objective in your life. And so forcing me to decide at age 12 was to say, choose something now. But if you change your mind later, that's okay. But you only get to change your mind if you substitute that goal with another goal. Wow. All right. I'm at 73. I'm getting a lot out of here. Okay. Okay. Wow, that was that's that's great stuff. And you've been living your life like that. I have always having to go in my life trying to live up to the legacy that he's he's laid out before me. I, I lost my dad to cancer in um, in two thousand seven. I missed him every day, but I relive these lessons that he's taught me frequently. That's how he feels alive to me in my spirit. Wow. I'm sorry for the loss, and I celebrate your father and what he taught you. And and um, that led to a book you called Sowing Seeds. Yes, yes. You know, so I, I only son. I have three younger sisters. And so after my dad had passed away some time, my youngest sister approached me and said, I need you to write a book about the lessons dad taught you. I said, well, you all, we're all raised in the same household. You know what those lessons are. She said, no, you rode to the market. You were out in the fields with him. You know things that we don't know. I said, okay. She said, tell me a story. I told her a story. She said, never heard that. Tell me another story. I told her another story. She said, never heard that. You owe us a book. So this (laughs) book is not War and Peace. It's not a big novel, but it is my story. And it is the lessons he taught us. And we, I wanted to make sure that future generations and our family would know the character of their grandfather, great-grandfather someday. So they will hopefully be able to carry these lessons with them as well. Well, I'm, I'm so what, – first, what's your youngest sister's name? Her name is Gina. So I just want to thank Gina for approaching you and saying that. But it's interesting that Gina got – that you were in the field with him and you were the boy child and therefore he would probably give you stuff that he didn't give the girls because he wasn't that close to them and they were in the kitchen with mom maybe. Okay, so I would like to, if you could give us a story. What's one of those stories that that you told Gina that he told you? Oh, very good. So there was an occasion. There was always something to do on the farm. Always work to do. Lots of activities and things. And 
Um, so on this particular occasion, we were sitting under a, a pecan tree, uh, getting ready for lunch. And my dad asked me to take the car and drive down to this little local restaurant called the Little Mint. He said, and buy a chocolate shake for me. And I said, okay. So I get in the car, drive down to the Little Mint, ask for a chocolate shake. And the young lady who's a cashier said, we don't sell chocolate shakes. And I thought, that's odd. My dad asked to get him a chocolate shake. So I returned home empty-handed. Found my dad and I said, they don't sell chocolate shakes at the Little Mint. He says, he said, I know they don't. I said, but why did you send me down there? He said, well, I have questions for you. Why did you return empty-handed? I said, because you asked for a chocolate shake. And I said, okay. And so from that point, he te- taught me the, the importance of making decisions. There was no right or wrong decision in, in his mind. The importance to him was that I come back and defend what I brought home and how and why I made the decision when it was an impossible task that he had given me. <laughs> oh, I like. So he would take everyday kinds of things and get yes. lessons out of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything was a lesson. Okay, so. You know, we're getting ready to take our first break, Maurice, and I just really want to come back. And over the break, if you could think of another story or two to tell me uh, and the audience out there, I'd appreciate it. So I got you. Grew up on a farm, and that took you to finance. At age 12, your dad told you, boom, make a decision here. What do you want to do if you're like? And always have a goal in your life. So, yeah. Maurice Smith, we're going we're gonna to take our first break. Uh, And then we'll be right back with what else happened in your life, the lessons your father taught you. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Program is Everything Cooperative. We talk about the cooperative business model and the impacts and the benefits of it. And right now we're talking to Mr. Maurice Smith, who grew up on a farm, and he changed from a farm to finance. Uh, I have it that he went from blue jeans to a suit, a suit and tie. He also traded in his plow for a computer. And we're talking about the lessons that uh, his father taught him on that farm that helped him throughout his life. Uh, And that first lesson was to make choices and don't come back empty handed. And he would give impossible chores for him to do. Go buy a chocolate shake at a place that didn't sell chocolate shakes. Mm. And Maurice came back without a shake, which is cool. But his father wanted to know what was the decision? What's the point? And he could have come back with a vanilla shake or a Coca-Cola. But making a choice and then being able to defend that choice was the lesson there. So, Maurice, can I, I'm just excited about this. What What's some other things that your father taught you on the farm? There was um, an occasion, Vernon, in our hometown, like many hometowns, where there were guys who liked to hang out on the corner. And at age 13 to 14 years old, I'm thinking that that seemed cool at the time. And I asked my dad, could I go hang out on the corner with the guys? And he said no. And each year I would ask, may I go hang out on the corner with the guys? And he continuously said no. When I became of age, and I, I decided that I want to go hang on the corner with the guys. And my dad said, sure, go ahead. And I went out to the corner with them, and I realized that this idleness of sitting around, not being productive with your time, did not suit me. 
So I returned to the farm, and my dad said, well, why are you back so soon? I said, those guys aren't doing anything productive. He said, that's because in your mind, that working on a farm has created in your DNA that you must always be productive. You must always be found doing something, working hard, doing something for the community. He said, you will never be satisfied the rest of your life doing nothing. And so the, the lessons he taught me, the work that we had to do, the discipline it took to get it done was part of the lessons of growing up to be a man and to be a responsible citizen in the community. And the one habit that I've, I've, I've tried to break, but it's hard to break as an adult now, is that I don't rest very well. You know, my wife calls me a workaholic. I must always be found doing something. And I, I blame growing up on a farm for that, for that purpose. <laughs> you blame it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And our society is better off for people like you, sir, that does that. I, I love your father the more you talk about him. Thank you. So there was something in the book about peaches. What, yes, sir. What is that about? What is that lesson about? You know, Vernon, in all our lives, there are things that we can relate to in our past and our history that help us deal with challenges for the future. I had been working for this credit union for maybe a year or so. I was in charge of making investments. They included marketable investments. You make an investment in, a, in, a, in an instrument, and the values can go up and down. And I was having a little bit of difficulty just sort of, I could, I could do the math, and I could understand intellectually what was going on, but it didn't feel intuitive to me. So one day visiting my dad on the farm, I was telling him about these marketable invest securities we're investing in and explaining to him how they work. And he listened to me, and he said, that's just buying peaches. It's like commodities. Wait, wait. Hold a second. So your father, you're you're now working in in the business you said you want to be in. Yeah. Okay, you're working in the credit union, and you're yes. buying marketable securities. That's right. And you take it to your father, who's a farmer. And he yes. he out there tilling the land and stuff, and he breaks it down to you. He, he tells you what this is about. Absolutely. From that point forward, I never misunderstood marketable securities because I had a reference point of my history to relate to it. So what is, what is that point again? Because you purchase peaches on a farmer's market, and when you buy a truckload of peaches, a tractor trailer load of them, the value immediately changes, go up or down depending on the supply demand of, of the other products on the market that day. And he would talk to me about these, what I call these um, unrealized earnings and gains and losses on our balance sheet. That was the same thing with him buying 500 bushels of peaches and the value going up later because market conditions changed. That he taught me at 12 years old, and I related it to my career. So you could either get a gain when you buy these 500 bushels of peaches, or you can lose depending on the market. Not depending on anything you've done, but the market would tell you whether you got to Profit or loss. Absolutely. And I understood that intuitively because we did it for so many years. But sitting in an office buying securities, the market can change as well. And what you're holding in your hand can become, become more important, more valuable or less valuable, depending on what market conditions are. Wow. <laughs> so your father was a wise man who you lost in several years ago, but you had a chance to be with him for all of this time. And you could take your career, after you're in this place that you said you want to be in at 12, you're in this place with a, a starch white shirt, I assume, and <laughs> <laughs> you're buying these marketable securities, the boy from the farm, 
and he's able to relate. Ah, I would have loved to have met your father, sir. Thank you, sir. And Gina got you to write this book, your youngest yeah. sister, because she knew that he was teaching you stuff that he didn't, she didn't have the opportunity to learn. That's correct. So it's called Sowing Seeds. Can, can I get a copy of that now? Absolutely. I'd be happy to send you a copy of it. It's available on Amazon. The publisher wanted me to go out and do book tours and things like that, but this was a gift to my family. But we did agree to publish it on Amazon, so the world, if it so chooses, would be able to find a copy of it and hear some of the wisdom my dad passed along. Well, I've got to tell you, I would like your sending me a copy, but I'm not going to accept that gift. Here's what I'm going to do. I got some nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews that this is going to be their Christmas gift. Oh. Okay, I just got I just sort of figured out my Christmas. You just you just you've given me I, I don't like giving gifts cuz I don't well I don't like the gift giving season in that you have to buy something whether you want to or not or whether they need it or not. So I try to find gifts when I do give them that that brings meaning. And I have a sense, even with this one story of the peaches mm. or always making a choice in your life or making a decision at 12 of what you're going to do with your life. If my nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews and grandchildren, and I've got one great grandchild, if I could get them to learn these lessons, boy, thank you. Uh, this this is well worth it already. I got my Christmas gift set. Okay. Thank you, sir. And I, and I thank you for your offer to send me one. But if it's okay with you, I'll 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 buy it. And uh, what if you make a profit off of this this book? What are you going to do with that profit? What would your I father say? Do with that profit? He would say, go find some person in the community who stand in need of charity and help, and give it away which is what he spent much of his time doing. A person in a community that needs help. Yes. Yes, indeed. Then give it to them. Yes. Well, I picked that up, too. I have it that God's been a blessing to me so I can be a blessing to others. Absolutely. That's our responsibility. Okay. And matter of fact, if I look back at when I graduated from high school, about the year you all integrated, and I, well, I graduated in 65, so... Somewhere in there, I, I had, I would have never thought that my path would be what it's been, and I would see as much as I've seen and grow wow. as much as I've gotten, and and even have the prosperity that I've gotten. So it's like, wow. So now the the big question for me in life is, okay, with this blessings that you've given me, what's the best utility for it? Who's in need that can really get this in a, in a way that really propels their life? Yeah. Not yeah. just a hand out, but a hand up. How to how to help somebody, really help somebody. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So I, I agree with your dad on that one, sir. Okay, so you've gone from were you a you were a loan officer your first job? What was your first job in? That is correct. I was a loan officer. And my dad said that's a, a perfect position to have to start my career because I get to learn from others mistakes and other successes and apply those to my own life. In addition to doing my job and serving the community, he said, but let other people's experiences teach you. Is that in the book, Sowing Seeds? 
I do have a lesson in there about learning from others' experiences. Yes, sir. Absolutely. You can get well, lessons that is, by reading textbooks, but you can also get lessons by listening to other people's stories, life stories. Well, that is something my father and mother taught me, that I did not have to go and make all of the bad decisions. I could li- yes. listen to and look at somebody else and no, no, you don't go down that alley, that street. You don't go down that one. You know, you take this other street because going down there is, is, you know, it's full of things that will pull you down in life. Exactly. Okay. So that that is something. So you went from loan officer, and then where did you go from there? From there, I had the opportunity to manage two branch offices, you know, being a vice president, city executive for the office, and, 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 and the branches were just your, um, your routine retail services. We make loans, took deposits, financial counseling, things like that. And then eventually into marketing and then into general management where I am today. So, But you were managing a branch, so that's the same job that the white guy had? You were in charge of a <laughs> branch? You know, Verda, I had not thought about that. Exactly, yes. So what age were you when you, you were able to get what you said you wanted to get to when you were 12? Oh, so I was, I was, I entered management at age 24, but I became a president CEO at age about 42, in fact. Okay, so 12 to 42, 42, that's 30 years, you had become what it is you said you wanted to be at 12. Yes, sir. And your father helped you to get there. He did indeed. By giving you these life lessons. Sir, we're going to take our second break. It's just wonderful, and I want to get into the lessons you've learned being in this co-op. This credit union is a co-op. So as soon as we come back from the break, I'll talk about the four sectors of a cooperative and how credit unions are in one of those sectors. And I'd like for you to tell us about some of the values of of a cooperative and impact that co-ops have that you've learned. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, we're talking about uh, everything cooperative this day with Mr. Maurice Smith. And Maurice's father at age 12, his father told him to choose what he wanted to be in life. And he decided the next morning he wanted to be a, like that white bank officer with a white starch shirt and being in charge of the bank. And he got that at age 42, 30 years later, he became a manager. Matter of fact, even before that, he was in charge of two branches uh, of the bank. So he had gotten it with his father's help, and you can get some of those lessons learned by going to Amazon and buying his book, Sowing Seeds, which I'm going to do for my nieces and nephews, and that's going to be the gift that I give. But he has been working in credit unions, and there are four types of, four sectors of the cooperative. And it depends on who owns and controls the cooperative business, who owns and controls it. If it's owned and controlled by the employees, the people that work in that business, it's called a worker cooperative. And therefore, any business you could think of could be a worker cooperative if the employees owned it. IBM, Ford, if the, if, if the employees own it, then that could be a worker cooperative. If it's only controlled by the persons that uses the products and services, it's called a consumer co-op. The consumers own that business. Housing co-ops are there. Credit unions are there. Food co-ops, uh, sometimes they're owned by the consumer, the people that buy in that store, and sometimes it's owned by the employees. 
Uh, so that's a consumer co-op. You got worker co-op, consumer co-ops, and then in the, on the farm, a lot of times they uh, the farmers would come together and they would buy the products and services they need to produce whatever they produce, and that's called a purchasing cooperative. Um, farmers are doing that. Artists are beginning to use that, do those kinds of things, come together, and they can get a better price. And normally that company, the people in the company, become experts in whatever they're buying, and therefore they can get a better product at a better price if buying in volume. And the other thing farmers do is that they'll come together to market their products, to take the products that they produce to the to the marketplace, and they can get to other markets they couldn't get to, and they can get a better price when they come together and sell, and that's called a marketing or producer cooperative. Farmers come together like in Cabot Creamery, Land of Lakes, Ocean Spray, and there's a black group, uh, Maurice, in Pittsburgh. Black women come together called Ujama, and they market their artists, and they make clothing, paintings, uh, jewelry, and one year I went there and I bought all of my gifts, particularly for women in my life, from them. And I told them the only problem I had, the quality was excellent and the price was too low. So in Pittsburgh, the prices are lower than in D.C. Uh, <laughs> or New York. But the quality was great and the women in my life really liked that. So you could go to ujama.coop, I believe it's what their webpage is, to buy uh, jewelry and paintings. And they'll go around the world like your father did and you all and buy things from other black women or women in the diaspora and then sell it at their storefront. So as a group, they could get a storefront by pitching in together, which individual artists couldn't do. They couldn't afford that individually. But as a group, they got a storefront where they can sell their products, and then they will work in there to help sell it, and therefore they can get a profit that they couldn't get before, and then they have a web page and all of that. So it's it's phenomenal. It's really good good people in that company, Ujama. So that's that is these are the four different types. So you went through the credit union because at age twelve you wanted to be a banker. You want to be a bank president to wear that shirt. Starch shirt as opposed to coveralls or blue jeans. <laughs> okay, I got it. Yeah. I got it. We wore we wore those blue jeans on, uh, and I worked in, on the railroad with my dad a couple years when I was in college. So, um, what are some of the lessons that you've gotten about being a cooperative? One of these models in these sectors. What's the benefits of, of, of a co-op? These, your father said an honorable business is what you, you right. wanted to be into, an honorable career. So what are some of the honors or values of, of a co-op and the impact that co-op have uh, on our society? Brian, that's a really good question. It's extraordinarily important for the public to look beneath the hood of a co-op to truly understand what's going on to the untrained eye a credit union, um, a financial co-op, looks like every other type of financial institution. We offer commodity products, checking accounts, a checking accounts, a checking accounts. But if you look at the way we do business, how we are organized, the empowerment we give our members, the choice they have to, to participate in the democratic process, and the rights they have through the principles of the institution, that sets us apart from everybody else. I love telling the story because it gives our members hope that the institution that they're doing business with is focused on their well-being and no other agenda. Wow. 
How does that materialize? You look focus on their well-being. So you're focused on the member's well-being. Give me some examples of how does that look? What does that look like? Absolutely. So a lesson from childhood is my dad told me, if you own something, that makes you the boss. Period. So I work for a credit union that has 370,000 members. As members, they own the credit union. I report to a seven-person board of directors, but I actually have 370,000 bosses. And when the boss asks you for something, a good employee is going to be attentive, deferential, listen to, and perform for the boss. So if any of my 370,000 members were to call me and ask for something, that I'm going to stop what I'm doing to have that conversation to work with them because they own the co-op that I work for. That, that's a message we want every member to understand and appreciate regardless of how much money you have on deposit. It could be seven figures or it could be $25.14. You are still my boss, and I owe you deference to listen to you and work with you. How can you respond to being one individual, 370,000 bosses, though? If we do a good job, all 370,000 is not going to call the same day. But if we do a bad job, I want them to call. If we, if, you know, we're subject to making the same kind of errors of any other organization. But I need for members to know that their voice matters. If, if your voice doesn't matter in a, in a member-owned co-op, then, then what is the point of our existence? So, so members can call me anytime they want to and get to me. We do not announce phone calls at the credit union. You want to talk to the CEO, you just call and say, I'm a member and I want to talk to him, and the receptionist is going to send you a call straight through. And if I'm not here, they're going to give you my mobile number, and, and that member can call me at home because they own the institution. I work for them. I owe my loyalties to make sure this institution works for them as well. Okay. So if everything is working right, the likelihood of me calling you is very slim. So if I've got you've got three hundred seventy thousand people, and if everything is working right, you're not going to get those calls. It's only if something's not right that you that you will potentially get a call. That's correct. And then you you stop whatever you're doing. Now you think that bank president, when you were age twelve, you went into that bank. You think that bank president would have had the same view? I do not think so, because it's a different business model. And the model of that local community bank was to make profit for a group of stockholders. I, I get it. There's nothing sinister about that whatsoever. But that's a different model and different purpose. Unlike the National Cooperative Bank, which is a bank based on missions to serve co-ops, you know, it's a bank, it has a bank charter, reports to the OCC, who's the regulator. But NCB acts like a credit union. And its, it's customers are treated like members. And the opportunity they have to participate in the bank feels familiar to how we think about these sort of sensibilities for our credit unions. Not every financial institution feels that way, but I, I like the support we give to the membership that makes us who we are. So I have it that co-ops are concerned about three things. The major three things <clears throat> that co-ops are concerned about our first people, that's the 370,000 members. Yes. Then the the planet, that's the environment and the planet. It's in yes. the mission statement of co-ops, the values of co-ops. And then third is profit. 
concerned about profits, you have to you know, if you're going to if you're going to survive. That's correct. You've got to have more coming in than going out, and I'm sure your father told you that. And whether it's buying peaches or or creating war, uh, potatoes in the field, you've got to end up at the end of the day bringing more in than you put out. But that's not the major reason there. The major reason, as you said it, what's the needs of the members, the people. Yes. Where the capitalistic model, and this is what I learned in my MBA, every decision was based on return on investment. Yes. What's the greatest return for those stockholders? So there are three things that they're concerned about. And they had three things, too. Their first concern was profit. Their second concern was profit. And their third concern <laughs> was profit. Okay. okay. A familiar so, theme. <laughs> so the, the the profit, profit, profit model of most capitalists are that leads to decisions that are very short term focused. Yeah. And the decisions that are based on people, planet and profit are more longer term focused. What's best for the community? What's best for the, the members? And that's a longer term focus normally. So, yeah. And that's why I love this model. So when you grew up on the farm, did you all work with co-ops at all? As you were growing up, you know, we did not. Not to my knowledge, my dad may had, but the but the network of farmers that he collaborated with operated like a co-op. Now, I don't think it was officially formed as such, but they shared resources. They would share equipment. They would they would go to the markets and buy in groups together and purchase seeds and inventory together. So they did some of the same things you might think a farming co-op would do. Yeah, that that sounds very much cooperative. You can do things together that you cannot do individually and, and do it better, get better prices if you buy things. And maybe uh, I see on your book cover is a tractor that yeah. maybe one farmer couldn't afford a tractor, but if five of you got and bought, bought a tractor together, then you could share that tractor. Absolutely. Uh, as ways of doing stuff. So it's it's cooperation, and, and, and that's what I like about NCB's view is, it's cooperators or anybody that acts like a co-op. It could be a Native American tribe that acts like a co-op or Alaskan tribe or something. Okay, so now we're in this COVID world, and it's hard times. How does the credit unions that you work with, what kind of care do you do for your members in these unsteady, harsh times? Good question, Vernon. One of the things i like to impress upon my colleagues and the members of the credit union is that we have been through this before. Well, not a pandemic-driven recession like this, but we have seen recessions and tough times economically before. And what we want to make sure is that we remain present and available to the membership. If they need services, they can count on their credit union. This is not the time to forsake the membership because of, you know, job loss or difficulties financially or because they're having some housing challenges. This is, the, this is why you join a co-op, a credit union. It's because during tough times like this, your institution, the one that you own, is going to come to assist you. So the one thing that we try to impress upon our membership is a sense of hope. We're not going anywhere. We're going to be here, and we're going to be available to help you through these times. Okay, so I get, I get to you there as a financial institution. You collect money you, through, through deposits and checking accounts and all of that, and you may take those that excess money or the money you have on deposit and put it in marketable securities, and you had to figure out how to do that. It's interesting. You went to your father for help. That's cool. <laughs> okay, the farmer. But now you're talking about what you're selling is hope in tough yes. times. Yes. 
that, that is so important here. The tools for financial wellness, for making a loan, for helping people with investment, financial planning, that's pretty, that's pretty much settled science. We know how to do that all day long. But if a community or a household lack hope that life can get better, you're not going to look for answers. And we believe in the very DNA of a co-op, of our credit union, there lies the hope. We can help you get there, but you have to believe us. And that belief comes from how we demonstrate ourselves, how we provide services in and out of economic seasons. We're going to treat you today in a recession the same as we did a year ago when there was no recession. We will get back to an expansionary economy again. We're going to treat you the same because you need that consistency. So I want to talk uh, probably on the other side of our final break here. I knew this was going to go fast, and, and I'd have more things I want to talk to you about than we will have time for. So just I'm going to tell you real quickly, I'm going to want to get you back on here at some point. But I would like for you to tell us on the other side of the break, uh, what are some of the things that you do for people that the credit union will do for your members through these economic downturn, this thing of this pandemic and people losing their jobs and fear of losing their homes or uh, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that the credit union uh, products that you have you've created to help people through these rough times and everybody out there will be right back please don't touch that dial so we'll come back and find out what the credit union is doing for folks in COVID we'll be right back fourteen fifty W O L where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, National Co-op Bank has been our sponsor uh, for the seven years we've been on, and NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities by providing innovative financial and related services. And we're talking to Marie Smith, uh, who grew up on a North Carolina farm, and he went from the farm to the to finance. He changed, he turned in his coveralls, his blue jeans for mm -hmm. a suit and a tie and a white starch shirt. And now he is the chair of the board of NCB. And so before we took break, Maurice, I said to you, I'd like for you to give us some examples of what the credit union that you are working with, what are some of the things that you are doing to help people through this coronavirus, this downturn, economics, people have lost their jobs and all of this? What are some of the things that you put in place for them? Well, thank you for that question, Vernon. And I like bragging on our institution and the spirit of co-ops and serving and helping our members. So right off the bat, we, we knew, we, knew we needed to listen to the members and what their needs are. So we provided forbearances and loan extensions and loan workouts for members who have loans with us. They find themselves out of work or reduction in their work hours. And so we were able to go to them and say, let's, let's wait this out. So by working with the credit that they already had outstanding with the credit union to give them time to get past this season and get back on their feet, we didn't have someone who was, who was kicked out of their home or they lost their automobile at a time where they need to eventually get back to work. That was very important to us that we show that support. But I also think it's important to focus on what we did not do, Vernon, because in many times we've seen in past recessions, financial institutions actually close the door to their customers. They close out their line of credits or they increase the underwriting requirements for getting loans. 
or they reduce the services to the community because it's going through a tough time. Those are things we did not do. We want to be ever-present and ever-available to our members and the community and to let them know this too shall pass. We're going to get past this season. We'll get back to an expansionary economy again. But until then, we're going to continue business as usual because members are counting on us. So, so okay, we're in a tough time. We've been here now for nine months. Yes. So some of your members, your 370,000 members, they've either lost their jobs a lot of a lot of employees of, of federal governments and state governments, uh, they don't have the money. They cut back on the hours, so they lose income, and so they can't even pay their uh, mortgages or their rents, their car payments, their credit card payments, and, and and you don't force them to pay. You don't you know kick them out. You know send check, turn in their mortgage and make them you know lose their homes and take their car back where you don't repossess them during this time? Not during this time. We want to give them time to get back on their feet. You know, the, the credit unions, you know, not to get too wonky about the financials, you know, set up of a credit union, but we have reserves that we set aside for tough times. And so we would tap into those reserves to ensure the safety and soundness of the credit union during a recession. But repossessing someone's home or taking their car away from them at this time, is the very last thing that we want to do. We want to find every opportunity for you to keep your transportation, to keep your home, because your family is depending on that. We don't make any money. We don't gain by taking any property away from a member. So we will, we will bend over backwards to help you get back on your feet. If we don't do this as your member-owned cooperative, who else is going to do that? Sir, I... Uh... Uh, you know, my finance had, a, and I, I, my, that was my emphasis. I thought I was going to be a, a finance or a investment. I thought I was going to be an investment banker. And uh, I want to tell a quick story on my brother. My brother ran numbers. And uh, if you all know the black community, that's running numbers uh, is what he did. And so when people would ask me, what does he do? I said, well, he's an investment banker. <laughs> he takes people's money and he invests it, and then if they make money, he gives them back more. I mean, so it was our in our neighborhood that was yeah. our, our sense of investment banking back then. But bending over backwards to to help people in downtown, that's almost anti what they teach in the MBA programs. That, that, that doesn't you 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 help people so when they get back on their feet, they can come back better and stronger and working together. That's phenomenal. It's not a model of efficiency. And if we were running this institution based on the bottom line only to enrich some stockholders with, um, for, with additional profit, there would be an incentive for us to jettison the members who were not proving to be financially profitable to the institution. But that's not who co-ops are, and that's not who we are. So these are members. They have every ownership right in this institution as anybody else. This is part of the democracy, the egalitarian society we are as co-ops. We don't know any other way to go through a tough time than like this. So I'm hearing you say that you really put the values of co-ops into play, and that is uh, values of self-help, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity. But I like the, the, the 
founders, the cooperative members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. I think I say caring for one another, the golden yeah. rule. And when your father said, you have to be and choose something that's honorable, I, that yeah. stood out to me. Okay. Yeah. And this values of honesty, honorable, openness, honorable, social responsibility, honorable, and caring for one another. I don't think you can find anything more honorable than that, and that's what cooperative values are. And you just describe in action lived experiences in a downturn, COVID-19, what the credit unions are doing to live up to those principles. Yes, sir. Phenomenal, sir. I had to make sure I didn't bring up tears as you were describing that. <laughs> so, so do you have any, like, real personal experience where you have worked with a family, a uh, a single mom, a business that was a member, and they came to you because they're in downturn, either as a loan officer or anywhere through your your experience now of 41 years in the credit union uh, that you could share with us? Thank you, Vernon. I had a conversation with a member just a, just a short two or three years ago because I'm fond of writing in our, in our publication, our newsletter to the membership about the virtues of credit unions and co-ops. This member wrote me and said, thank you for your article, but that's not for my family. We're in financial straits. We don't see ourselves ever owning a home someday. Mm. The member put her phone number in her letter. I called her and I said, you have just challenged us to improve your life. I hope you know what's about to happen next because we're about to invade your life. Mm. I then asked one of our, my colleagues, would you work with her and her family? Shortly, about a year later, she sends me a, a, a card with a picture with her, she, her husband, and her three children sitting in front of their new home that we helped them get. She lacked hope that this could happen for them. And I said, you, what you've done when you call us out saying the credit union cannot help you, you have just challenged us. You put a chip on our shoulder that we're going to do whatever we, it takes to help you live a better life. And I am so proud of that story, but there are so many more just like that, things that we've done when people didn't think it could be for them. Hope, 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 hope. Now, now was she white or black? Uh, an African-American family and who, uh, who had written us. And they was just, she, she didn't ask for anything. She just wanted to tell us that I, I like your message, but it's just not for my family. Did you, um, did you ask her what her religion is or her political standing is in the, in the neighborhood? I didn't ask, and I didn't care. <laughs> so uh, I've just described the first principle of co-op. Uh, if co-op is working as a co-op, none of that matters. It's volunteer and open membership. It doesn't matter the race or the gender or where they are in society or their political or religious affiliation. If it's really working as a, as a co-op, if your credit union or rural electric cooperative or your this, this Ujama in Pittsburgh, who went wherever. If it's a co-op, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's right. That's right. Okay. And you help them to have hope, and then after hope, okay, they realize their dream that she didn't even think was possible. Absolutely. Yes. So in providing that hope, uh, can you tell us real quickly here, what's the steps that you went through with her? First of all is, you know, the, the technical aspect is we need to listen to your story, develop a financial plan, give you discipline, and then show you actionable steps on what it takes to achieve that. That's fairly scientific. That's pretty rope, you know, procedures. We know how to do that. But preliminary to all of that, 
I had to tell the member that you you must believe that we can make a difference. You didn't say you had hope, but you must believe because you wrote a letter to me. And I'm going to take that as you want to have hope, and we're going to give that to you. Okay, Maurice, you helped her to have hope. You took the challenge of your father at 12 years old to figure out what you want to be. You stepped into that. He told you you always have to have a vision, a view of what you want to do. If you change your mind, you don't want to do what you thought you wanted to do, you still have to have a goal. So what would you like to leave people with in in your lived life experiences? What would you like to leave people with? I mean, one is, do you like your life that you've chosen? And what do you want to tell people out there, particularly for the young person? Uh, Thank you, Vernon. That's a reflective question. I like the life I've chosen. I was born for this work. It suits my personality. It suits my values. It's co-op business. It it just, it fills my DNA with who I'm supposed to be as a person. But what I would like to be able to share with anybody, if they were to read my life lesson someday, is that that you, you can make a difference. You have, in fact, you have a responsibility to make a difference. And whatever that difference happens to be in whatever area or discipline you choose, your responsibility is to be better than you could, than yourself and help somebody else. I hope everybody got that. I mean, you've just listened to a cooperative nerd for the last hour. <laughs> <laughs> and Maurice. Folks out there have a chance. There's something called a co-op for the United States Postal Service to make a difference in the Postal Service cooperators. And and I would request, Maurice, if you would go on USPS.coop is Mm -hmm. a web page, USPS.coop, and just sign a letter. We're not asking for any money. And just say you would like the Senate to go ahead and pass the law to give the the Postal Service $25 billion. There's a lot of uh, black and brown people that work in the Postal Service that have fair middle-class incomes that can live a life and they provide a service, particularly rural rural America, where you farmers are at. Um, If you just go and sign up for that, I appreciate it. Maurice, thank you. My pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Got to have you on again. And I know that the uh, National Co-op Bank is will continue to to strive with you at the head head and the chair of their board. Thank you very much, sir. Everybody out there, we'll see you next next Thursday and live cooperatively.